Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. First edition news with Willem van Dandrum shortly as we wrap up what has been an incredible Women's World Cup. And of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. But first up, as we record, it's less than 24 hours since the final ball was kicked in the Women's World Cup, which saw a sublime performance by Spain totally control the final against England for them to lift their first ever Women's World Cup trophy. We thought there would be no one better to wrap up what has been a month-long festival of football and someone at the very sharp end of the Women's game in this country, manager of the reigning premiers and champions of the A-League women's competition from Sydney FC, Ante Juric. Then as we emerge from the bubble of the World Cup across the globe, we're two weeks into the Premier League and a dream start for Ange Postacoglu at Spurs to talk to us about how the first Australian manager is going. We'll talk to Charlie Eccleshare from The Athletic. But Edge, uh, the party's over. Uh, it was a fantastic ride. Uh, the Matildas were amazing. Uh, we got a, a, a proper final against two world-class teams. The better side won on the day. Could you have hoped for anything more? Oh, look, you could have hoped that the Matildas went all the way, but they didn't. Uh, but what a fantastic uh, final it was, a, a quality game. And how good was Spain? They really did put their foot on England. Um, at different times, we thought England might have been able to pinch one back against the run of play, but Spain were just so superb. And how good is their number six, who just quietly won the uh, golden ball, Rob? Um, a huge shout-out to uh, Aitana Bonmatti, who was just absolutely superb through the tournament, but in particular in the final. And, um, yeah, I think um, what what surprised me a little bit, um, other than the performance of the Spanish Federation president when he was uh, providing um, all the emotion after the game, was just that they had to get on a plane two hours after getting their medals and fly all the way home back to Spain. No uh, big night in Sydney, Rob, for the yeah. Spanish uh, yeah, well done, World well done. Cup of Champions. Well done, Spanish Federation. And, and Derek, uh, I mean, uh, we'll talk about Jorge Vilda throughout the course of the show and, and the disconnect, obviously, with the uh, eruption that occurred um, late last year and, and 12 players. I mean, what a testament to their depth. But Severina Wiegmann, she pulled the uh, the ripcord very early uh, um, at the halfway mark. She saw what was going on. Um, does she play that game in, or uh, or start with Lauren James? Are there different tactics if she gets another opportunity to play that final over again? I found the England performance really frustrating overall. I felt like they kept they couldn't keep the ball in midfield. One of the biggest problems they had, they kept giving it to Spain. Um, I think probably Viegman. I would have gone with the eleven that she went for. I think you know they played so well against Australia, I felt like you had to go that 11 again and then have James as your wild card and what a wild card to, to bring off the bench. But we saw um, we saw England bully Australia uh, four or five days ago um, and then we saw Spain bully England and like the, the, the contrast in performances was really, really stark. But I just felt Spain, I'm, I'm wondering what, what Wiegmann could have done, really, because I thought Spain just played the perfect game plan. They were superb all over the park. They controlled the game. They ran the clock down. They did everything they needed to do to win the game. Um, I don't know if Wiegmann will have that many regrets, to be honest. If you England have had a fantastic tournament, uh, I feel like they just came up short against a, a fabulous team on the night. And 
yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have started James. I feel like she needs to earn her way back into this team. Um, and yeah, sort of tactically, I think I think England can probably just look at ball retention a little more there. And they did not create enough chances. I mean, honestly, there were 13 minutes of injury time and England didn't get a single shot on goal. In fact, Spain were the most likely to score in the 13 minutes of injury time. So they were well beaten. It could have been a lot more than 1-0 particularly with a penalty, and Spain were definitely the deserved champions. And, Willem, I had a pop at the, the referee, Tory Penso, um, late in the game, and and you and, and Edge um, didn't agree with me. Um, I was listening to the, the the Guardian Football Weekly Women's Edition, and uh, um, I was relieved in a way to see that I wasn't just the only one who thought she didn't do a particularly good job. But um, the um, I don't think her influence uh, changed the outcome of the game. I, I'm as clear as anybody that Spain deserved to win. But football is a game of fine margins. The Spanish didn't take all of their chances. They weren't up 3-0 at halftime and there were opportunities for England at 1-0. And uh, and particularly when, you know, that Lauren James uh, uh, drag down occurred late in the game, um, I felt that the moments for England to somehow or other uh, climb back into the game were taken away from them by the referee. That was just my view. Yeah, it's just, I think unless it's really apparent, unless it's really obvious, it's just not the lens that I watched the game through, particularly these big finals. I agreed with Derek that England really did seem to slip into that Matilda's role that that they'd inflicted on them during the, the semi-final. Every advancement up the field felt like it could come unstuck at any point. It was like, you know, they were, they were walking the high wire and um, as Derek mentioned, 13 minutes of injury time. At no point through that point were they able to put a foot on the ball at the edge of the area and overload the defence and get any sort of consistent pressure on. Was that because Spain were able to chop them up too frequently and the referee should have intervened. Just not for me. I just, on the balance of it, I don't think the ref had uh, a bad enough evening for her to be in the spotlight. Plenty of news to get through and that's obviously going to be the story that starts us off. Yeah, just a couple of little uh, facts that have come out of it. We've spoken about the bulk of it, but Spain now are, for the record, only the second nation to win uh, both the men's and women's World Cups. The divide was pretty clear, edge between Jorge Vilda and the players in their celebrations. So lots of people had, you know, within the general public come to this story perhaps late uh, and many people were sort of looking for, uh, for, for some division to cement what had been said and I think it was there uh, for all to see and then the sad postscript around standing skipper Olga Carmona who did score the winner not only in this match but in the semi-final as well uh, her father had been battling a long illness and uh, her friends and family not the Spanish FA but her friends and family decided not uh, to have that information passed on until after the final uh, it looks like I mean she's only 23 but it looks like a decision that she was at peace with she had come to terms with it in her Instagram post uh, post match was certainly one of sort of graciousness and uh, contentment to an extent rather than than outright grief. Absolutely. And it was just uh, extraordinary that uh, the message that she had written on her uh, undershirt, which she lifted up after scoring the goal, was for a friend who'd lost a relative. Um, and uh, at that point, she didn't know that her father had passed away. So that's just an incredible postscript. And I thought uh, – she was fabulous, wasn't she? What 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 a goal uh, she scored and well taken right in the bottom corner. Um, Mary Earps, who had such a wonderful game for England in goals, really couldn't do much about that one. Um, yeah, but that, it's just an incredible proscript that that uh, that the, her father had passed before the game and she didn't learn about it until uh, she was back in the 
in the change rooms. I think we should tackle Luis Rubiables right off the top of the show. Gents, he's the Spanish FA boss and he's the man who backed uh, Vilda through that tumult at the back end of last year. He's been criticised for what could be termed his overly affectionate embracing of the players on the on the dais. Uh, Jennifer Hermoso was later heard on Instagram Live and on a separate uh, media stream saying that she didn't like uh, his embrace. What did you think of it, Rob? The optics of it were appalling. Um, there's some articles that I've read where, where she's laughing along the way and, and she's she's um, in you know in, in Latin style uh, people do you know uh, they're very a lot more affectionate um, and and touchy feely but to to do that on the stage um, and in the in the um, aftermath of all of the drama around uh, the uh, the federation it, it it just was a terrible look and then and then there was a, a post as well uh, which was pretty much up yours to the players that protested um, uh, which uh, featured Jorge Vilder um, and, and and reaffirmed his, his tenure so so yeah, I don't think Hermosa was as offended by it as um, as uh, some of the words uh, indicate because they don't match some of her, her remarks afterwards. But uh, it, it was a bad look, and and the Spanish Federation, I think, uh, they were rightly kept uh, to the sidelines of the celebrations by the players and, and certainly the fans in the stands who, who, who boot a lot each. Uh, one thing I noticed, Willem, which I thought was quite impressive, though, was just the response between the Queen of Spain and the players and the familiarity that they shared. And um, there was some very little special moments between some of the players and the Queen. Um, our experience with uh, the Queen of England, I can't expect that Queen Elizabeth would have um, hugged uh, women footballers like the Queen of Spain did and and uh, there were some very nice moments too. I thought that was, despite well, I know we're obviously talking about the newsworthy item of the Spanish Federation President but I thought the Queen's response and her involvement in the in the celebration of the the, the awards going was was quite touching. Did you have any particularly strong feelings on uh, on this, Derek? Before we before we move on to the Matildas, you, I mean, it was hard to watch at the time. You didn't quite understand the the relationships and the dynamics between the players and the officials, but it has become pretty apparent in the wash up that it was unwarranted and inappropriate. This has been a fantastic tournament uh, for a number number of different reasons in terms of the profile of the women's game and and the general punters' reaction to. Uh, to the games. Um, beyond that, you've got teams that haven't been pay- paid at all, or players that haven't been paid at all. We've got still got disparity between male and female teams, which obviously needs to be addressed. You've got Gianni Ventino coming out after the tournament saying that women have got to snatch it, they've got to take it, they've got to they've got to step up. And I wasn't quite sure what that messaging meant, to be honest. I, you know, he's the boss of this organisation, and he's got to. You know, back in the back in the women's game as well. It, you know that this the system isn't built for it to be snatched or or to be built. It's up to him too. So I don't want to. You know, this has been a fantastic tournament, a fantastic experience. My appreciation and love of the women's game has increased dramatically during the tournament. It's the first time I've ever been to a World Cup. I think there was so much good. I actually enjoy watching women's football. I think it's very different to men's football, but I don't think you need to compare them. And it was just great. You know, there was a little bit of sort of nar petulance towards the end of the game. But on the whole, the players behave themselves. There's a lot of mutual respect. It's totally unlike the men's game. And I actually think if I was going to be encouraging my daughter to watch football, I'd be telling her to watch women's football. Because I think there's a lot that the men can learn from, from the way they approach the game. Let's move on to the Matildas. This is what we'll certainly remember. They have fallen short of third place. 
going down 2 0 to Sweden on Saturday. Tony Gustafsson named an unchanged lineup from Wednesday's semi final loss to England. By tournament's end, just 14 Matildas had played more than 30 minutes. The evidence is pretty compelling that the Matildas were tiring in the match against England and they were pretty cooked against Sweden. Um, so I um, I think there is quite a legitimate uh, line of questioning and analysis that should be undertaken to see across the board. I, I'm not convinced that uh, successful teams in the Women's World Cup have used low percentage numbers of players uh, through tournaments. So I think um, – I don't know the data off the top of my head, but I, I'd like to know what Spain did. I think Spain uh, shared – um, a little bit of um, rest time for its key players throughout the tournament. They could they had some big wins, didn't they, Spain? They, they had a 5-1 and a 6-0 win, so they probably had a more um, elasticity in their in their approach to give uh, key players a rest. But, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with what Tony said there, and I think this discussion will go on for a while, and I think it's uh, appropriate that people are questioning um, whether that strategy was effective. Yes, it might have got us into where we did, but it didn't help us win the World Cup. We'll close with Socceroos Central for the Green and Gold Army. The Socceroos are back in action on the 9th of September against Mexico and Dallas, so just over three weeks ago, uh, away with big games against New Zealand and England before the year is out. If you wanted to get to London for those two blockbusters, and we can call them that because they are as big as friendlies get, uh, the Green and Gold Army can help out, can they not? They certainly can. In fact, um, we're going to be launching a little tour uh, for only about 30 people uh, in the next few days uh, to capture both the Socceroos match against uh, England and New Zealand, a Premier League match involving Tottenham, as well as a couple of the League 1 and League 2 games and a couple of nights out at the theatre and a lot of um, good English food because there's plenty of good English food in London. That sounds like a party. Uh, the star of the week this week for our gents was Cam Devlin, who scored twice to help Hearts pass Norwegian club Rosenborg in the UEFA Conference League qualifiers. They next play Pauk for a spot in the competition proper. Denis John Rowe could have considered himself unlucky not to be picked in the World Cup squad last November. He's helping his chances for the return trip in January, playing a full match for Toulouse in a one-all draw with PSG. Another win for Mass Luongo and Cam Burgess with Ipswich Town, this time 1-0 over QPR. They remain first in the championship. And in the J-League, Kevin Musket and Yokohama F. Marinos are back on top after a late winner saw them beat Pete Klamowski's FC Tokyo 2-1, Rob. Excellent. Well done. Good news for Muskie. Yeah, we'll have to get uh, one of our favourite uh, Japanese football correspondents on uh, uh, very soon to either uh, Scotty or Paul uh, in the not-too-distant future. Okay, um, the party's almost over, but we're going to reflect on it one more time uh, with somebody who is right in the middle of the heartland of football, women's football in this country. He's the manager of the uh, the Sydney FC A-League's women's team that premieres the champions. He's uh, he's groomed uh, some of these players to the level that, they, uh, that they've been able to perform. Courtney Vine, a good example uh, through that club. So stick around after the break. We're going to talk to Ante Juric about his reflections on the Women's World Cup, uh, what he uh, expects of uh, the, the post-World uh, Cup uh, environment in football in this country, women's football in this country. That's Ante Juric next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And as I said off the top of the show, less than 24 hours since the World Cup final where Spain, in the end, quite rightly, lift the trophy against England for the first time ever to match their 2010 men's counterparts. Uh, it was a festival of football over the last month, exceeded all expectations across Australia and New Zealand in terms of crowds in the stadiums, nearly 2 million 
television crowds topping six million and Johnny Infantino quite rightly saying it was the best edition of the Women's World Cup uh, that has been uh, played uh, since it began in 1991. Now, a man who is heavily involved in women's football in Australia, in fact, he's the manager of the current premiers and champions of the A-League's women competition, Sydney FC's Ante Juric joins us. How are you, Ante? Yeah, good evening. Good, thanks. So, Ante, um, go- going into this tournament, you're a former Socceroo. You've played on the international stage. Um, you had a long career in the NSL. Uh, you played around the world. Did you have any hope that this tournament would be, for, not just from a, a Matilda's point of view, making the semifinals, but as successful as, as it's turned out to be? Um, yeah, I actually did. Uh, probably sounds silly, but been around a long time and... Um you know, I was lucky enough to play in 1993 in a World Youth Cup, and you know, that's 18, 19 year old kids, and we had 45,000 at uh, whatever Sydney Football Stadium. So, um, and the Asia Cup was pretty big as well, um, considering it was Asia Cup. So, I had no um, qualms in terms of football being huge, especially the World Cup. Um, again, just, you know, because football is very powerful, and I think it just showed a few other people, probably non football people, how big it is. Um, but yeah, it was huge, um, and yeah, definitely the Matilda's doing well, I think, enhanced that. But yeah, I had no, um, yeah, I knew, maybe more surprised in New Zealand, but because I don't know that um, sort of environment, I guess. But Australia, I knew the fans would go out, um, especially with the World Cup. And the final itself last night, um, it was uh, it was a gripping final, uh, only one goal in it. Uh, could easily have been a lot more uh, to Spain. Uh, England didn't take their chances, but uh, they, they never really looked in it from the opening whistle. Yeah, I went live actually, so it was nice to watch them. Spain um, were one of my three, probably a dark horse at the start of the, the tournament. I was thinking Spain, France, or Japan. Um, and they, they played some beautiful football. And from a personal point of view, I'm glad they won because just the way they play. And hopefully that changes um, you know, how women's football is played as well because it was so technical and probably has gone to a different level. Um, Ante, Bruce McAvaney, who's obviously one of Australia's uh, most significant broadcasted says some absolutely wonderful words um, about the Matildas on the broadcast that, that I thought were quite pertinent. He, he, he felt that um, obviously uh, the success of the Matildas in the tournament would bring more investment, um, but he felt that uh, the Matildas um, have now worked their way into the hearts of all Australians and there'd be more people interested in the narrative of the Matildas, they would follow the players overseas and, and follow their exploits closely based on just the huge tsunami of viewers of the audience. What are your expectations about a halo effect and legacy for the A-League women's competition? Can you see crowds increasing this year? Can you see memberships increasing? Can you see broadcast numbers increasing? Do you think it will it will translate to women's football at the national club level? Oh, I think it will. It's definitely not going to go gangbusters, but it definitely will. Um, you know, already Sydney FC have improved on their or got a record of their membership base in terms of um, the women's team. Um, so, yeah, 100% there's going to be some improvement. And I think we still need to capitalise and not just capitalise, push. Um, and this is down to the FA and the government and politicians because, you know, I've heard it all before again, like I said to you, I've seen a lot of positives after World Cups or things, and I've heard the same thing um, over and over and over. So, again, I'm sceptical, but I'm, this has touched a different nerve. So, 
I'm just hoping you know people finally come on board. But we need to, as as fans, as as the organisation, as NFA, we need to push this. Don't they can't sit idle. And what about um, Matilda's coming back to the A League Women's Competition? I read with interest. Uh, I know. Um, it sounds like Courtney Vine might uh, find her way back to your club, which would be fabulous for the A-League women's competition. I won't ask you directly about that because obviously um, there's been no announcements yet, but just is there a chance there'll be some more Matildas find their way back to the A-League women's competition? I've heard about a, a pot of money for marquee players that might be established by the APL. Can you see that transpiring? I hope so. Um, I don't know if it'll be a lot. It might be, you know, the Kaya Simons, potentially, uh, maybe some of the players that didn't make the squad, maybe Gilnick, um, Kramer, uh, potentially Polkinghorn, you know, she's retiring from Europe. Um, but those types of things. I- I'm hoping Vine stays and she's a little bit different to all those girls because she's in her um, peak, you probably would say. Um, and we're yeah, pushing... Yeah. One, because she's a great player for Sydney FC, but we also know the impact she will have for the league. So we're trying to do something for everyone. Um, again, but selfishly as a coach, I'd love her to stay. We're still pushing. Um, and she hasn't signed anywhere else, which is great. So she's still there thinking about it, but um, we'll definitely push. Uh, just what's your thoughts on Courtney's contribution throughout the World Cup? Um can you just give us your own assessment of how she went in? You must be terribly proud of her. Yeah, I'm super proud, super proud. Um, I think she did amazingly well when she came off the bench, but I think she played with freedom. I think the first two games, and it's you know, normal, probably was a bit nervous and wasn't the vine I'm sort of used to and we're sort of used to. Um, but, yeah, the last two or three games which came off the bench, again, she probably in my mind should have started from the start, but when she did come on, I saw those glimpses of, oh, this girl's now just playing without fear and, and destroying, you know, it was only 10 or 15 minute patches, but it was the line I saw at Sydney FC. I just hope she can reproduce that more at um, Matilda's level um, and just release the shackles rather than probably play another game. I'd love to get your thoughts on the emergence of uh, Kyra Cooney-Cross as now a... Uh, and also Mary Fowler as two players that really um, have, you know, two younger players that have now uh, forced their way into the starting lineup of the team. Can you, um, just as a as a, uh, as a coach, who's, you've coached a, a lot against those two players, um, but can you just tell us your thoughts on how they emerged and um, what sort of futures they ha- have ahead of themselves? Yeah, I think it's evident. Everyone saw how good they are. Um, you know, Mary Fowler had some good games. I think they, they fatigued at the end, but she was amazing. Um, played a few different roles. Um, Kenny Cross, for me, was a little weird one because I think she could have done more. She was excellent, don't get me wrong. But I just think she's potentially our best player. You know, it's probably a big comment, but and I think she was a bit too deep. And when she drove past players, she was like a different level. Um, so, yeah, I can certainly see her destroying the next couple of years but she's like you said quite young but um she's amazing talent and then you got Chudiak who didn't play a lot but she came on got a good experience and all those three players are just players you know you can't um develop I guess they just they develop themselves because they just play with the spirit and freedom um we just need to release that I think but yeah what a future for the Matildas with these three yeah it certainly is that was um yeah it's great to see the young players emerge um into the, you know, find their way into this uh, sort of period or, or generation of uh, Matildas, which we're loving so much. Um, so the draw for the uh, A-League women's competition comes out soon. Uh, we're going to a full home and away competition. Are you, um, just tell us about how excited you are for this uh, upcoming season, the home and away um, 
component of it I think everyone's been looking forward to, to have an even draw and be, you know play everyone once at home but once away. Um, what are you looking forward to, Ante, mostly this year? Yeah, that's, uh, it's long overdue, but it's fantastic. Um, also, Central Coast coming in last year, Western United, you know, playing everyone twice. I think there's, from my understanding, the first game will be standalone in the big stadiums. Um, so there's definitely going to be a push. Um, again, I just hope the fans come out and watch the players because I think sometimes the level gets underestimated, but the level is quite high, and I've always said it. You know, we compete with the Swedish teams and Denmark teams, maybe not the best English teams or... or Barcelona's, but definitely the lower table um, teams in those things. Um, so yeah, it's definitely going to be good football. Looking forward to it as um, you know, uh, champions last year and premiers, which we want to try and achieve again, which is going to be very tough. But they're the goals we set ourselves. Um, we've had a lot of changes within our team, obviously losing a lot overseas. But again, that's a challenge and opportunity for the new girls. So Ante, as a manager. Of um, of women's football, you, you saw a, a highly technical game in the final last night. We're talking about the the women's uh, A League commencing soon, and uh, and the level that uh, that it's uh, uh, it's improved to. What do we need to do in the domestic game, in so far as as um, as quality of managers across the board, um, training levels of training, the amount of training players are able to do to to get to a level um, uh, that um, that it might not mimic Spain's style because that uh, that tiki taka sort of uh, triangular football possession based um, game is one that's intrinsic in in the, the nature of Spanish football. They've got two tiers of professional leagues. Only one player last night um, in that game play plays outside of Spain. So the question is, what do we need to do to go to that next level um, at a national um, uh, on the national stage? What do we need to do in the domestic league? To yeah, we need to do a few things. It's a probably not an easy question to answer. Um, starting with our youth development pathways and you know having better coaches within the junior pathways. You know, our 12, 13, 14 year olds, uh, especially institutes, they need to get, and I hope it's not disrespectful, better coaches um, who can teach the technical stuff, who can um, promote. Uh, you know, the dribbling and teach them, you know, how to dribble and when's the right time, all those types of things. Um, because often the coaches are, uh, men's and, and, and women's definitely are getting two, three, four thousand dollars. So you sort of get just people who care about the game but are not really at that level. And in Europe, you get, you know, ex potential players or people that have been in game for a long time and the experience they get these kids is enormous and that's what we're where we're lacking but then also i'm going to put throw in a ball as well it's what you see in brazil and spain and things like that culturally you know you walk around the streets there's football cages in a sense you know instead of uh, nipple courts or other fields there's football cages where kids can just go down the park and play and that's where they develop a lot of this um you know it's in every single newspaper it's in every single TV channel. Um, so, can we ever get to that? I don't know in the short term, but you know that's why the difference is there. But we can definitely start with um, uh, you know the development pathways and helping with that, and maybe infrastructure. You know, throwing out those. You know, at every council field, there's a couple of indoor, well, not indoor, just you know what I mean, the cage football sort of cages there, so kids can just go down and play on their own, and we'll get stars from that. Yeah, and and you see players like um, Selma Paraluelo uh, moving to football from athletics. Clearly, she she grew up with the game, and and some of her 
skills and techniques uh, would have been skills and techniques she learned as a young girl. And uh, it's not lost on us the fact that the the generation that we're seeing now in 2023 would have been young children when the men's side won the World Cup all those years ago, uh, would have been influenced by that and that style of play. Um, Is is that the sort of thing um, that, that we should consider doing or is football too technical a game to transfer skills across from elite athletes into uh, into the top level of, of uh, it's very tough look you need to and you know this is why I'm proud of football I guess but, is, but in Australia we still have a lot of athletic players you know and um, again not disrespecting these players but Rasso Ellie Carpenter amazing athletes but they struggle technically so if we can get to that next stage mm. we've got amazing athletes and technical players um will be unstoppable because, again, we've got that spirit which got us through a lot um, in this World Cup um, and every World Cup, you know, even with the soccer rules recently. Um, so you can just imagine if we can somehow... But again, like, like we discussed before with Cooney Cross, Kibiak, uh, Mary Fowler, these are three gem players where, you know, Spain will be happy to have. So, um, yeah, we've got a couple of good ones um, in terms of technique and, and the full package. Uh, but we're getting there because the kids are getting better. You know, I've seen you know, pathways in terms of Institute and young know, Matilda. There's a lot of sprinkling of very, very good players and technical players. And before we let you go, Ante, the, the depth of Australian football, uh, I was listening to the, the official um, A-League's uh, podcast dub at the cup um, pose a question without notice that who was the only Australian player playing in the Spanish professional leagues and it was BD Goad. I mean obviously we know Hayley Rasso will be playing for Real Madrid in the coming season but uh, uh, are we expecting more of our players to, to, to go off and play in these big European, even second tier European competitions to, to, to fine tune and polish yeah. their skills uh, I hope so, uh, as well as playing at home? I hope so because again, there's a bit of a, you know, because you know, even the EPL, we have a push for this EPL and, and the female version of it. Is there's a big push there, um, and me being sort of continental European and Croatian background, I, I understand the quality of um, Spanish. You know, like like you said, Barcelona, the Champions League uh, winners. So I hope some of our girls go there. Um, I think some might struggle because of the technicality of it, but hopefully um, uh, Rasso does well there. And like you said, BD Go, I think they had one or two earlier, a couple of years down, you know, I can't remember who, but there's two or three girls there as well. I think Chidiak, yeah, sorry, Chidiak was there a couple of years ago, look at her. So, yeah, I hope um, we just don't direct to the um, uh, WSL, but it's it's... Yeah, it's great to be there, but hopefully some goes, you know, to France, like Ily Carpenter now, uh, Hunter, um, and a few go to, to Barcelona, not Barcelona, but well, hopefully Barcelona, but um, Spain. All right, Ante. Well, look, we'll let you go. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you've um, you've devoted a, a large stretch of your career to, to the women's game, and it's uh, certainly not lost on us the the influence that that people like you have had in in developing the the, uh, the class of the players that we we've seen on display over the, the last month that delivered Australia a semi final in the World Cup, and uh, and so much excitement. So uh, so thank you to you for your time and commitment and everything that you've done for the women's game in this country and uh, and good luck uh, for the season ahead mate uh, we hope uh, it's all onward and upward from here yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for the chat. No worries. Ante, manager. The Premier's the champions of the Women's A-League competition uh, as we wrap up the, uh, the the incredibly successful Women's World Cup across Australia and New Zealand. It's not too long before the Olympic qualifiers. It's all going to be around soon. So if you haven't been uh, to the Women's A-League so far, there'll be a standalone round to start the season 
make an effort to get out there, take your family, take your friends, take your kids to, to get along. If they've had a fantastic time now, then now's the time to, to get it done. And there's an opportunity right now for kids under the age of 16 to go to games free as well. So, uh, uh, so you know, the uh, the affordability, well, you know, can't get much more affordable than free, Michael. Okay, we'll stick around after the break. We're going to uh, cross to the other side of the world. Ange Postacoglu has, in the shadow of this Women's World Cup, just been doing some beautiful things, picked up a draw against Brent in the opening round of the Premier League and then goes and beats, of all teams, Manchester United. Uh, it's just really incredible. So we'll talk to one of our regulars from The Athletic, Charlie Eccleshare. He's next on box to box Get only the very best for Dad this Father's Day at Chemist Warehouse. There's great deals on Schick Hydro 5 Razor Plus 2 refills for eight seventy five. That's a good deal, Michael. You look clean-shaven today. I am clean-shaven, Rob. Yeah, always clean-shaven on a Monday. Yeah, exactly. Natio for men, firming face moisturiser. That's what you want to put on after you shave. 100 grams for $12.99. An American Clue, American Crew Classic Hair Fibre, just $22.99, Derek. That's the, the ultimate grooming product, that American Crew. Hey, sounds pretty good to me, Rob. That's not all. Chemist Warehouse also has Mont Blanc five-piece mini gift set for $49.99. So if you haven't shopped for Dad just yet, there's still a couple of weeks away before Father's Day. Get on into Chemist Warehouse and for 50 bucks you can get him that Montblanc five-piece mini gift set for just the best deal in town. VB for men, premium six-piece grooming kit for $59.99. I like the, the VB branding on the uh, on the uh, fragrances edge, um, just as long as you don't sort of stumble in there late at night uh, after you've had too many refreshments and uh, and uh, and go necking it. I can't say that uh, I'd want to do that, Rob, but yeah, no, 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 I haven't smelt the VB fragrance. Do you like it, do you? Yeah, it does. It doesn't smell like stale beer. It smells I was going to ask, that was my next question. <laughs> no, it smells good. And Versace Dylan Blue 50 mils for 69 that's just, was he your dad um, go for that Derek uh, Derek Senior Derek yeah I haven't sorted him out yet so yeah maybe Chemist Warehouse is where I'll be heading tomorrow exactly Chemist Warehouse the great savings are every single day box to box can you believe it for Chemist Warehouse great savings every day and Hoyt's Herbs and Spices changing the mood of food and this could be the most crucial goal of all Yes, this is box to box, and uh, what a brilliant World Cup it's been! And we saw England get all the way to the final, but not quite be able to step up onto the podium in the same way the men of 1966 did. But as we said, in the shadows of this World Cup, uh, Australian football fans have been watching very closely with the first couple of weeks of the, the Premier League, and Ange Postecoglou starting as. Well, I guess as well as any of us could have reasonably hoped to, and uh, Amanda talked to us about it from The Athletic, is Charlie Eccleshare, and he's with us right now. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, mate. Good. Now, before we get into Spurs, uh, uh, the Lionesses uh, made the country proud, uh, weren't quite able to get the job done and uh, stand uh, up on the, the the top rung of the pantheon in the way that uh, the, the men did in 1966, but it was a wonderful ride along the way. Yeah, it was. I think everyone was so full of pride, both before the final and even after the final. Um, you know, I don't think they could have you know, tried any harder or given any more. So it's a really good Spain team who I think fully deserved it on the night. Uh, were it not for Mary Ups, might have won by more. But yeah, it's it's been great. And I think hopefully it will be another really big moment for women's football in this country after winning the Euros last year. So those two moments combined. I mean, already the profile of women's football is so much higher than what it was a few years ago. Um, and long may that continue. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in this country, uh, making the semi-final, obviously getting beaten by the English on the way was uh, an incredible ride that uh, this country went on and and, uh, and lifted football and uh, and women's football into a stratosphere that um, that only the most optimistic could have expected. But I guess the only thing that I would suggest uh, matches that in terms of optimism is uh, the hope that Australian football fans, uh, even if they weren't Spurs fans, that Ange Postacoglu would, would hit the ground running. Uh, there were there was plenty of comment uh, leading into this that, uh, you know, he'd never performed at that kind of level, that um, Celtic uh, is a two-team competition and uh, the Australian leagues don't get anywhere near that level of quality. But uh, the opening two matches of his tenure at... Um, at White Hart Lane or, or the new White Hart Lane for, for um, uh, what it's worth that have been um, as, as from an optimistic point of view as, as good as we could have reasonably expected. It's been brilliant. I think it's exceeded expectations here as well because, you know, the the messages that I and others were getting from people who covered Celtic or New Angie's time in Japan were saying, you know, it, it can take a little bit of time for the ideas to bed in. Um And so I think we were expecting a slow start and, you know, who knows the next couple of games may be tricky, uh, but it's been so good. The, the ability for him to get across his ideas this quickly, it's just been staggering really. And, you know, he's, as you guys will know, he just says all the right things. Um, He just feels like a really, really good fit for the club uh, and everyone's fallen in love with him instantly. Is part of that, Charlie, to do with who was manager before and the time before that and the time before that as well? (laughs) Of course, it has been a a great start from Ange, but but similarly, you know, he was coming from a base of negative football under some of the the previous managers. Do you just feel you saw some of the scenes after the, the game, the fans singing in the concourses on the way out? Do you just feel like that Ange has almost released the handbrake at uh, Spurs a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, he's such a welcome change for most of the supporters who both the style of football, but also the personalities. They just never connected with any of Mourinho, Nuno or Conte. I mean, the contrast, the way they play football is is huge, but the way they speak, I mean, Conte always gave the impression that Spurs were a bit beneath him and that he was sort of doing them a favour to be there. Postacoglu from his first press conference has you know, made it very clear how privileged he feels to be doing this job, both at Spurs, but also just generally the job of being a football manager. He's amazing at sort of showing that humility. But yeah, they were willing, they were so ready for this kind of person to come in after the Conte and Nuno and Mourinho periods. Um, you know, they, they feel like this is someone who gets the club and understands it and the way that they want to play football. So he he definitely benefits from that, I think, you know, very quickly. From his first press conference, people were, were kind of all in. You know, they really want to believe in this guy. They really want him to do well. And they that was just never, there was just never that connection with those three predecessors. Basically, since Pochettino, they, they've kind of been waiting for this, this kind of person. One thing he has done is, I mean, obviously there's the new signings that, you know, James Madison had a, had a great game uh, against United and a few of the other players, Vicario, the goalkeepers, um, you know, made some impressive saves as well. But like a new signing is uh, Eve Basuma, who I, I must admit I'd forgotten played for Spurs. Uh, and yet for these first two games, you know, he's, you know, Ange obviously sees something in him. Spurs spent a lot of money on Basuma um, from from uh, Brighton. 
Uh, is this the sort of thing also that we can expect from Ange? Is that he's going to look deep into this squad and, and pick out players like Basuma because it is really chalk and cheese the difference, isn't it? Yeah, I mean Basuma when Spurs signed him summer of 2022 I was I was really excited for them because he's a player when he was at Brighton I always looked at and thought well someone's going to come in and get him and they'll be really lucky when they do because he's brilliant never happened for him last season he got COVID early on he had injuries Conte talked about how he didn't understand you know he, he needed to work on the tactical side of the game um, but you know Postacoglu's come in and he just looks like a perfect fit for that really important deep line midfield role and yeah they'll, they'll, I'm sure there'll be others as well I mean Papsar played a bit last season to be fair he's you know he's still a young guy he's still only 20 but he's another one who's come in and uh, just looks like his potential is going to be unlocked which is a scary proposition because he he's really really good he's got a really high ceiling uh, I think him under Postacoglu even someone like Ollie Skip who I think some see as you know more of a kind of solid operator, but I think he could really fly under Ange. Um, it's amazing what good coaching does. You know, look, look at someone like Jurgen Klopp. Look at Pochettino. They didn't necessarily Pochettino didn't inherit superstars, but they created superstars, um, and that's what Spurs will be hoping something similar will happen under Postecoglou. We wasn't all. Um... Um, uh, I suppose happiness and joy in North London. Uh, there were obviously some protests before the game as well, uh, particularly against Enoch, the investment vehicle uh, behind Tottenham Hotspur and, and Daniel Levy. Um, for those of our listeners that weren't across why uh, why the Spurs fans were out protesting, maybe you could sort of inform us why why they were there and you know how I suppose it's going to be difficult for them to find that balance between being hostile towards things that they don't like while also creating a positive atmosphere in the stadium. Yeah, I mean, there were sort of two things. There were two um, separate protests in a way on the weekend because there was the Enoch out, Levy out protest, which happened very frequently. And then the main protest, which was organised by the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, was about an increase in ticket prices. So Spurs froze season tickets, uh, season ticket prices, but increase. there's been an increase for... Uh, match day tickets, which went down very, very badly, obviously given the current economic climate uh, and the cost of tickets at Spurs games anyway. They are expensive. Um, And it it was a really well done protest actually because they didn't want it to overshadow the game and they didn't want it to be kind of violent and really hostile. It was, was, I I thought it was well done. It was reasonable. Um, When I was there, it started about 3.45, kickoff was 5.30, and there were a good few hundred people. Um, And yeah, that, that, that is tricky, you know, because they they don't want to be uh, sort of affecting the team. They, they want the message to be very much to the hierarchy. And I think they were able to do that. Um, I think what's interesting is that in some ways it may help Postacoglu because I think even if things go badly, the anger will be not in his direction. It's going to be at the people above him. Um, and that might take some of the pressure off. I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. But it certainly made no difference because even if there was some, you know, the, the, clearly that that protest is is about frustrations that have been building up for years and years and years. But we didn't see any of that. You know, once the game started, it was the best atmosphere. 
certainly I'd seen since the North London derby of May 2022 when Spurs beat Arsenal to get in the Champions League. And some felt it was even better than that and may have been the best that they've ever seen at the stadium since they moved in four years ago. So uh, it's a delicate balance, but I think it's one that was fine uh, on the weekend. Um, and I think it's really important that the supporters trust and others have their say about these issues because I think it's something that's happening not just at Spurs, but various other clubs, both in England uh, and elsewhere. And in the stadium, a lot's forgiven when you're winning and you're playing in that Spurs free-flowing attacking style that um, that that is the hallmark of of the great Spurs side and the expectation of, of Spurs fans. Uh, uh, the um, h- how forgiving will will the the, um, the the supporters be if they are playing? This style, but that defence does start to leak and and the losses mount up. I mean, how, how much time do you give a guy like Postecoglou before things um, could potentially turn? And I don't want to be pessimistic because they may not. We might be seeing a wonderful season uh, beginning here and uh, and incredible outcomes. But let's just say in the you know the parallel universe where they don't, um, how much time does he really have? Yeah, I think fans um, are quite good at understanding when a team is hopeless and when a team has a plan, uh, but results aren't quite going their way. And I always think with Spurs, the contrast with Pochettino and Nuno's first 10 games, they weren't dissimilar results-wise. And actually, Nuno's first 10 games, the results were bad, there were five, I think it was five wins, five losses. But it was actually the performances that got him sacked because they were awful and fans could see, everyone could see, well, what are we doing? Where are we like where's the progress? What's the plan here? Whereas Pochettino, there were, yes, you know, had they had many more results, maybe he would many more bad results, maybe he would have gone as well. But at least there was a sense that okay, we're trying to do something here. And Postacoglu is far more in that Pochettino category and I genuinely believe even if they hadn't won on Saturday let's say they'd drawn maybe even lost I still think fans would have come away from that game fairly enthused because they can see that they're trying to do things that there is a plan that there's a direction of travel um, and so I think the, those choppy waters because they, they're going to happen they're going to they, they will have a game where they're too open and they lose to a team that everyone thinks they're going to beat and there will be those questions of, are they too open? You know, do they have to be more tight defensively? We know Ange isn't going to compromise really, you know, maybe little bits here and there, but he's very, very committed to a way of playing. He really believes in that. Um, and I think that that conviction, the fact that they're playing good football, I think that will really help um, sort of, maybe that's being too optimistic because of, you know, we're all reactive. Of course we are. But I do think that will certainly buy him some time um, and stem some of the more re- uh, sort of negative reactions to bad results. And Bournemouth this weekend, they've had a bit of a wobbly start to the season, a draw and a, and a, a relatively heavy loss, uh, which is, you know, never uh, uh, too uh, um, punishable at Anfield. Uh, but uh, the Liverpool of uh, the current era are not quite the Liverpool of their premiership um, winning uh, days and, and Bournemouth have, have, uh, have been uh, punching above their weight in recent seasons. Uh, so uh, expectations for that guy? Yeah, I think the way Spurs are playing or have played in their first two games, they should feel confident. Um, they should go, they will go, I think, and impose themselves, which is encouraging because too often they've played reactively over the last few years in these sorts of matches. Um, the Premier League is unpredictable. It would sort of be, 
typical were they to go there and get turned over. But I no, I think they should go there and feel like they've they they can go and impose themselves and go and win this game. Um so yeah, I, I feel fairly confident for that. And I do think for, for Spurs fans, it's the first time in a while that they, you know, the best one of the best things I think about being a football fan is when you're at that period where your team finishes a game and you're then just so excited about the next game. You know, you're counting down the minutes almost to that game. And I think a lot of Spurs fans now will just be itching for Saturday to to get to see the team again. And that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing feeling. And uh haven't had that for a while. Yeah, look, I had the good fortune back in 2018. I think it was on Easter Sunday to be at Stamford Bridge uh, when uh, when Spurs. Uh, Deli Alley, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. drought. Uh, Christian yeah. Eriksen as well. Uh, yeah. And we uh, had some friends that um, that managed to get us some some tickets for the Spurs away end. And uh, uh, it was absolutely manic. My 18 year old son at the time just, uh, he'd, he'd never been to a game before. It was his first big travelling opportunity. And he's he's become a die-hard Spurs fan ever since and uh, um, so um, I, I, I get exactly what that um, that that passion and excitement is all about when uh, well I guess any club but this is the example of Spurs um, they um, they were going off um, so mate um, we, we hear in the background a, a new Spurs fan um, how old's that little one that I remember last time we communicated I think it was earlier in the year you're on paternity leave or late last year is that um, the, the little one yeah so he's now uh Ten months, yeah. Excellent. So yeah, he's uh, <laughs> making himself heard. <laughs> Good on him, mate. Well, Charlie, thanks uh, for joining us, mate. Um, we're, we're really grateful. Uh, um, uh, and and Derek, uh, you uh, you're probably not seeing his Arsenal shirt in the in the background, so he's got a. <laughs> sort of grit his teeth and, and watch a, an Australian do well. And, uh, and another one of my colleagues on this show is also an Arsenal supporter, mate, so they're going to have to uh, to uh, find a way within themselves to uh, to cover their team as, uh, as the season goes on because um, now that the World Cup's over, all eyes in Australia from a football point of view are going to be on Ange and Spurs and uh, um, we hope uh, that they, you know, continue onward and upward. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, Charlie Eccleshare from The Athletic. Okay, stick around. We're going to wrap up the Women's World Cup Cup after the break with World Cup Corner on Box to Box. Wella, wella, wella. Everyone's going to buy Hoyt spices. Michael and um, I have got some spices to make my uh, pork medallions in the fridge. Um, a tribute to uh, to the Spanish side with uh, some cumin and paprika and garlic powder. Um, that's the sort of flavour. What about the four pepper mix, Rob? Of course, the four colour peppercorn mix. Because that's very Spanish, the four colour peppercorn mix. I can just see you there, um, you know, rubbing it all over those pork medallions, uh, giving it uh, a little bit of tender love, and uh, just like the Spanish do with their tapas. Um, I can imagine you just uh, dancing around the kitchen, you and Sandra, with a replay of the Women's World Cup final on. Um, if you've yeah, I can just see you doing that. You've got to nail down, mate. I'll be you know, doing a bit of flamenco uh, along the way. But, uh, no, look, it is fairly delicious. If you, if you just... Like I can actually see you giving Sandra a bit of a kiss like the uh, president of the Spanish Federation oh. did to Hermosa. Yeah, that was, that went down well, didn't it? Um, didn't it not? <laughs> to moving back to Hoyts. So now you want to get your spices to, 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 to amp up the flavour of your food and if, you, if you've got some chicken or some pork or even a steak and you want to get some flavour into it, make sure you get along to, to the uh, local safe. Well, so I keep on saying Safeway for some reason, having these sort of uh, Doctor Who style throwbacks. Um, 
Coles or the good independent supermarkets, get a salad, some patatas bravas. Will, Willem, are you familiar with uh, patatas bravas? Yes, indeed, Rob, very much so. Yeah, and uh, they're absolutely delicious. Get it on the barbecue. Derek, um, you, I'm sure you do this quite easily, um, that, that sort of uh, flavour combination. Yeah, I was just salivating um, listening to all this. I've got a few Spanish favoured uh, meals that I throw together, so definitely big on the paprika and the four the four spice or the four pepper mix as well absolutely so get on down to say that Woolworths, Coles and all good independent supermarkets always changing the mood of your food Box to Box Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse Great savings every day and Hoyt's Herbs and Spices Changing the mood of food And this could be the most crucial goal of all we're going to wrap up the World Cup, Willem. Um, you've got a couple of little uh, storylines and, and a bit of fun to wrap it up. Yeah, I want to talk about the funding, Rob, and you can always get stuck in the weeds and bogged down with Australian sports funding because if someone's happy, someone isn't. Uh, but it took one day post-Women's World Cup for soccer Twitter to be ablaze with rage once again. On Sunday morning, we saw the Matildas presented to 5,000 fans in Brisbane. Uh, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk stood on the podium. She praised them. She she sung their uh, sung their praises and announced a statue at Suncorp Stadium. But then on Monday, it seemed that perhaps her government weren't quite sure of which sport the Matildas play because their performance was celebrated with the announcement of a $15 million contribution to the newly redeveloped Ballymore Stadium, which includes a National Rugby Training Centre of Excellence. The Wallaroos train there alongside the Queensland Reds. There was also $18 million towards the new home of the AFLW Brisbane Lions site in Springfield. Those two venues have been, um, they've been up and running for some time, but it seemed like they were perhaps retrospectively attributing their funding to uh, their developments. And then in, for context, so we've had 18 million and 15 million. Uh, the three football stadiums that were used by nations at this Women's World Cup, Perry Park, Lion Stadium and Moreton Bay Central Sports uh, Stadium are going to receive between 150 and $250,000 each. Uh, so, Edge, that's post-tournament and you can always sort of structure these arguments and omit what you like for the sake of your own cause. But uh, that was post-tournament. Prior to the tournament, the government did dish out $2.6 million, uh, across seven venues to get them up to training and there was also an $11 million uh, upgrade to Suncorp Stadium. But again, the bulk of Suncorp's work is for the NRL origin, not your week-to-week Brisbane Raw sort of stuff. Certainly is, and um, it just proves again that uh, football is uh, behind the eight ball with uh, some of these mainstream sports in Australia that uh, that do get the lion's share of funding. So we've just got to be on our game. Uh, uh, I think that's the, the main thing. But I, I, I do think the legacy of this event will help extra funding be um, secured for our sport. And we've spoken for such a long time about needing to drive this home. We knew how good it was going to be. Maybe it outdid even our expectations. But now we are at the point where we can't let it happen as it did in 2015 when the Asian Cup came, was awesome, and then left, and nobody outside of those really within the game remember it. How are we set to capitalise as the success of the Matildas? The soccer has won that tournament, but has the success of the Matildas here left you feeling any more confident that we can get it right going forward? It has, actually. I want to channel a bit of Bruce McAvaney because I heard him uh, with a really good summary of um, his own, the impact on on himself. He said that the World Cup has changed all our lives. He said there'll be more investment. There's no question there'll be more investment in the game. We know that will develop. Um, he, He said it's also given a lot of young women and men that vision that only football can create a stage like we've seen. 
he said, as great as the other sports are, and he said that no one loves AFL more than him, but he did say there's only the world game that can create such a stage. He said they're going to. He said these Matildas are going to be followed by a new generation of the Australian public in a way they've never, never been felt followed before. He said that's because we're now invested in Cooney Cross. We're now invested in Hunt. Uh, we want to know where those players will go. We want to understand whether Fowler will get more game time now in England. All of those things were not on my horizon four weeks ago, and I think I'm speaking for a lot of sports-loving Australians that they are now. So I think that's an important little summary from Bruce. We all love his work. He's a doyen of sports broadcasting, but I thought it was very authentic. When I watched it, um, I, I thought Bruce wasn't, just being a broadcaster, that was a bit of an authentic message from him. And if that does ring true, the legacy of this will be um, more investment, um, more people taking an interest in the Matildas and uh, the halo effect and trickle down to the W League. So I do think it's going to have an impact, but it's up to the sport and the administrators and the leaders uh, to capitalise on it, Willem, to do their job well and you know convince government to... Uh, give a greater share of the the existing budgets to to football rather than AFL and NRL. Yeah, just jumping in on this one, Edge. Um, I, th- I think uh, Bruce's awareness of his voice uh, in sport in this country and the impact that it has, the respect that he has, uh, is um, is. Uh, writ large in the remarks that you've just read out. Uh, I have had the good fortune to work with Bruce uh, on Commonwealth Games, on football, very early on um, in my media career. And uh, he's, a, he's a genuinely humble, decent man. He's not a guy that um, that has an ego that uh, that matches his ability. And and the consciousness of the man that, that his voice is respected and heard um, comes through in, in those words that he said because he, he knows that, let's just say that, that male uh, archetype of uh, of sports fan who only watches AFL footy or cricket or NRL or whoever they happen to be, he's talking to these people to uh, to guide them in a in a fashion to to stick with this new. Uh, passion that they've uh, discovered for an Australian team that they never would have thought that they would in a million years have had any interest in. So uh, so credit to Bruce for, for taking um, the, 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 the high um, levels of respect that he has in this country uh, and, and, and spotlighting the lens in, into not only the now but into the future and hopefully the expectations um, that he has will come to, to fruition. Let's close out having a look at some of the adverts that did the rounds again and again and again. That is one issue with the modern streaming services, Derek. They seem to only have a selection of maybe 10 to 12 ads that get absolutely pounded into the ground and uh, some of these were as inane as ever. My personal least favourite was probably the Adidas one that featured very obviously David Beckham and Lionel Messi, but less so Alessia Russo and Mary Fowler. You couldn't see their faces. It took me until last night to actually really have a look and see, oh, it actually in little bubble writing does say their names, but their, their faces are obscured. Um, that one was for Adidas. Uh, what what caught your eye or your eye throughout? I kind of work in the marketing space and these kinds of ads do generally bring out the worst in creativity. Like there's a very uh, lowest common denominator. Um, the briefs are usually pretty cringe and, and ad agencies don't tend to come up with anything well, you know, the Nike ads from the 90s probably were the, were the benchmark of, of quality football ads with the Brazilian national team. These were well short of that. 
my my favourites probably was the Lydia Williams Powerade advert um, uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, I don't think Powerade picked the right person to be in their advert. That that, that seemed not, not not the right thing. All due respect to Lydia, um, she seemed all the rules around not wearing the Matilda's kit was applying. So they have to wear these kind of baggy, horrible. And she was wearing this grey top that didn't flatter her at all. Um, and then, yeah, she was drinking a Powerade, and then she had to stand in a fake tunnel behind her fake teammates who were wearing fake uh, Matilda shirts and then get herself pumped up as if she's walking out to the game because she's had her Powerade. So I saw that one a number of times, and, uh, yeah, like, I'm glad that I'm... a bit of authenticity, didn't it? Uh... <laughs> it did. What about you, Michael? Did you see any that you loved? Oh, look, the one that uh, – what about the Roxana ad uh, that had seen her <laughs> sweating down her chest, but her armpits, they weren't sweating at all. There was nothing nothing there. That was uh, – that got a bit of a bashing. And um, if you did watch a lot of the tournament on uh, Optus, you would have seen the Oreo ad and a little cute little cute little girl with her uh, – might have been her father dancing around the, the saxophone. Well, that ad got on Optus uh, – if, I mean, Oreo must have paid a little bit more than the others because it was like on every break. And, I mean, I like the odd Oreo maybe three or four times a year, but um, I'll tell you what, I, I didn't want to see that ever again. Not going to encourage you to to, uh, to go on down and buy yourself a pack of Oreos each. Um, all right, look, I'm going to I'm going to spotlight one ad that we we probably didn't see on either Seven or Optus at all. It was the ad that went viral, and like Derek, I spend my life in the world of advertising and booking, placing, managing, uh, advertising, and and this was the Orange uh, Telecom ad from from France. It was the deep fake ad that we're all familiar with, the one that went viral, uh, the two minute ad for uh, for the uh, uh, that shows the uh, the intense game of uh, of the the French men's team and the likes of, uh, of Kylian Mbappe and Karim Benzema playing, and then we realised that we've been tricked a minute in, and it's actually women's football. So I thought to end on a positive note, um, even though it wasn't broadcast on on the networks in this country, that um, that it was uh, uh, a very clever use of deep fake AI technology to, to to showcase some of the the you know the prejudices that a lot of people have uh, against or had with before the tournament. Um, and uh, um, and call them out uh, in in the form of advertising. And there's a very very good YouTube clip and article to, to, to show you how it was done. If you want to do a little bit more homework, gentlemen, that was superb, Rob. Uh, one of my favourite uh, World Cup ads was the 2010 one of Pepsi. Do you remember them playing in the, in the Savannah, Derek? And uh, the the pitch was moving. Uh, had all the um, the uh, obviously Pepsi was an ambush ad, which are the, often are the best ones because mm-hmm. Coke was obviously the sponsor of the. FIFA sponsor and Pepsi uh, did this one. It was a good one. It had Zidane and Messi and uh, Drogba and all sorts of people in it. And uh, I, I did enjoy that one. Do you remember that one? I do. Yeah, I do remember it being slightly stereotypical, uh, what people think of when they think of Africa, maybe. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I noticed there were... And necking a Pepsi when you're thirsty. Necking an Pepsi. There were some drop bears in the Adidas advert, I think, yeah, when they were out in the uh, in the bush in Australia too. So yeah, many, many a cringe moment. Well, you know that should be a peanut butter ad because we all know what protects you from drop bears. You've got to wipe crunchy peanut butter on the back of your neck if you're uh, walking through the bush. Really? 
Yeah, it's true. It's a fact. <laughs> All right. Oh, okay, guys. So uh, let's let's wrap it up. Look, that's the World Cup. Um, it's it's been a wonderful journey. Um, but as we've tried to do throughout the course of this show, we're segueing out of the World Cup into the the, the the normal world of football. We'll be covering all of the European leagues. We'll be covering the women's and the men's A League competitions, the the Socceroos and the and the Matildas qualifiers as they come up. So we'll, we'll you know we'll have a little bit of a shake up of, of World Cup corner and uh, and we'll keep on bringing you little tidbits of, of football. But what we will do is hopefully bring you a, uh, an entertaining, informative show uh, every single week and and also uh, an edition of Stoppage Time, which we will do later on in this week. Edge, well done, mate. Uh, it's been great covering the tournament with you. Um, until the next one. Absolutely. Until 20, what are we, 2026, yeah, USA, be- Canada, Mexico. Look forward to that one. The yeah. next one on the agenda. Derek, thank you. Thanks, Shane. It's been a pleasure together and to you for listening to us thanks again we hope we've brought uh, the world cup to you and we'll keep on bringing uh, football to you over the weeks and months ahead please subscribe to box to box stoppage time and offside wherever you get your podcast tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on twitter make sure you like us on facebook as well or x i think it's called now and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game